All right, well, welcome back to our final series, uh, sermon series of, of Spoken Reality. We've been in this for a few weeks now. We've been looking at um, kind of the way we live our life versus the things that we say about our life. And I've said this each week about how culture tells us that real life doesn't matter. It's what we say about real life that matters. And, and I can define my own reality. If I speak it, it is true. And that's really the heart of of spoken reality. And over the past few weeks, we've looked at some biblical examples of guys like Hophni and Phinehas. We've looked at the rich young ruler. Last week, we looked at uh, Peter and Paul and uh, Paul calling Peter out on his own hypocrisy about the way he was living his life, all the things that he knew better about. And so uh, this week, I want to speak very intentionally, and I want to uh, I want you to hear my heart on a very sensitive subject. I knew that when I was going to preach this series, I knew I was going to preach this sermon. And, uh, and I knew it had the potential to be controversial, uh, but then I also know that the gospel doesn't shy away from controversial issues, right? When we do that, uh, when we begin to ignore those controversial issues, it's, it kind of uh, leads right into what I said last week, our silence becomes affirmation. And so um, the reality is that, that some of the things that we're going to talk about today are not rooted in opinion. They have to be rooted in what Scripture says. So we're going to read a lot of Scripture this morning because I think that's important. I wrote uh, an answer to a question that was asked to me not long ago about what is the greatest cultural challenges facing the church. And so I'm going to begin and end this morning with reading you my response to that because when I wrote it, I thought, that's really good. (laughs) So uh, I'm not going to reinvent the wheel there, but here's how I responded. As culture changes, issues facing the gospel change as well. In the 1920s, the pressing cultural issue was prohibition. In the 60s, it was defining real love. In the 80s, it was responding to the AIDS epidemic. In the early 2000s, it was defending the definition of traditional marriage. And now, one of the main cultural issues in my response I discussed too is the response of the church to gender identity and fluidity, which is the belief that you get to define your gender based off of your own individual feelings and not off of your actual biological genetic makeup. Not only that, but that everybody else in society is now expected to validate your gender decision, and in most cases, expected to celebrate and congratulate and applaud your truth. And this church, I believe, is spoken reality in its most extreme case. And forgetting any actual biological truth, if you say, I'm a girl, then you're a girl. If you say, I'm a boy, then you're a boy. I have the power to identify as whatever gender I please. I I read a list this last week uh, that listed off male and female and 72 other genders. Of one, uh, non-binary means that you don't identify as any gender. Uh, One of them was, I can't even remember the name of it, one of them said that uh, if you're depressed, you feel more closely associated with one gender than when you don't feel depressed. And so you can change as often and as much and and bend into that as as much as you want to. The frightening reality is that our culture has accepted and embraced this spoken reality to the point that it's at the forefront of almost everything that we see Books and magazines and television shows, news outlets, movies, radio, Instagram, TikTok, you name it. It's, it's, It's invading, including our public education system. And the church typically has one of three responses to that. One, some churches accept it, right? 
They just kind of embrace this new reality. There are denominations today that are splitting over these issues as we speak because their, their leadership as a whole has embraced this liberal theology and the congregants don't hold to that. And they are, they are leaving their denomination by the droves. They either embrace it or they choose to ignore it. Bury our heads in the sand and hope that it all goes away and that we can just weather the storm and get through it. Or some churches are fighting back against it. And like in every instance, the only thing the media portrays is the extreme cases of those. And, and churches get generalized into a Westboro Baptist Church kind of category. Uh, and, and, and these pop-up pastors will say things and spew with really hate speech and extremism. Uh, that's just as wrong, in my opinion, as, as acceptance. And so hear me, I, I know, I know that I can get up here and I can preach a sermon on, on Genesis chapter 2. I can talk about how God made us in his image and likeness. And in the image of God, he created them male and female, right? Specifically, individually, male or female. I could quote Psalm 139, for you created me in my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. All the days written for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Like we know those passages of scripture and I could probably get a few amens because most of you in every sense of the word agree with this. I'm preaching to the choir in the, in the most extreme sense. You know the truth, you know the reality, and most everyone here would agree and affirm those truths and realities. And so I thought, what better way to address this cultural pressing issue than to address the church and how we respond to it? And wouldn't you just know, the Bible tells us exactly how to. So if you have your Bible, I'd love for you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians 13, immediately most of you know this passage of scripture and half of you are probably thinking, what in the world is this passage that we read at my wedding have to do with this cultural issue that we're facing? But if you read 1 Corinthians, Paul's writing the church in Corinth and he's addressing a number of different things. Really, 1 Corinthians is a letter of correction because the church at Corinth had gotten a lot of things wrong. People were pledging allegiance to Peter and to Apollos, and even to Paul. And Paul writes and says, is Christ divided, right? He has this incredible question. He says, don't follow men, follow Jesus, right? We don't, we don't follow me or anybody else here. This is all about Jesus. He corrected some wrong practice within the church, talking about sexual immorality, immorality some idolatry, some, some uh, mishandling of the, the Lord's Supper, and he even addressed some unity uh, and the need for unity within the body of believers. And then in chapter 12, Paul begins to address spiritual gifts. People were, people were complaining or maybe even vocalizing, well, if I don't have this gift, then I'm not as important as the person who does. Or because I have this gift, I'm way more important than, than others. And this is where he makes this famous statement, just as the body, though one, is made up of many parts... It's all part of one body, so it is with the body of Christ. He's telling us, listen, we all need each other. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? Right? Y'all remember these passages of Scripture that Paul kind of gives us a real-life, tangible example in the body. And then, in chapter 13, in context, it has nothing to do with marriage. 
even though we use it all the time, it has everything to do with how the church is supposed to act toward each other. It's how we're supposed to love each other within the body, and I would say even without, outside of the body of the church. And so let's read it together, and, and please hear me. I, I don't want your familiarity with these passages to, to lose the impact of what Paul's trying to tell us. 1 Corinthians chapter, one, or chapter 13, verse 1 says this. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but I do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge and I have faith that can move mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. You see the spiritual gift connections even in these first few passages. Uh, I speak in tongues, I give to prophecy, the faith and giving. Paul says, of all of those things... None of them matter if we don't love. Speaking in tongues is nothing more than the clanging symbol. Prophecy and understanding, faith that can move mountains is nothing. And if you give away everything, including your own life, which was a mark of, of true discipleship in the first century, that you were willing to die for the cause, even if you died for what you believed in, None of that means anything. Paul says, I gain nothing if I don't love. And it's really just that simple. Because isn't that what we're supposed to do? And aren't we supposed to love? I mean, Jesus himself said in John chapter 13, verse 35, By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. If you love one another. Not if you go to church all the time. Not if you even have a sticker on the back of your car. Not if, not if you wear all the right clothes or if you even speak all the right lingo. If you love one another, then people will know that you're a Christ follower. Jesus said again in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus says of all the things, of all the law, the two most important things is to love God and love other people. And John comes in, and John talks a lot about love. If you haven't read the Gospel of John, or even the letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, you should, because he talks a lot about love. 1st John chapter 4, verse 7, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. 1st John three eighteen, little children, let's not love in word or speech, but in action and in truth. Let's not just sit back and talk about it, let's actually do it. 1 John 4.20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. 1 John 4.11, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And here's the struggle, and I know it. When issues like this, culturally, how do we love people that we fundamentally disagree with? How do we love people and not approve of their lifestyle or the decisions? How do we love people when everything inside of us pushes back 
against what they are saying is true. And I know I read this verse not long ago, but it's so true. And if you don't have it marked in your Bible, you should. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says this. God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's how. In every sense of the word, how do you love people that you fundamentally disagree with? You love people because God loved you. He chose to love you when your whole life was anti-God and anti-religion and anti-righteousness, when we wanted nothing to do with him and our lives were at our worst. He chose to love you. He chose to express his love for you in the fact that he actually came, he left heaven, and he came to earth, and he died for you. And it wasn't just this uninvolved martyr's death. He loved us so much that he chose to. That from the beginning of everything, he knew the only way I'm ever going to be able to redeem them is to die for them, and I'll do it even though they hate me. Isaiah 53 says that by the punishment that brought us, peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. How do we love those struggling with this gender issue? We love them the same way that Jesus loves us. We choose to love them. Jesus didn't come down to earth and assimilate into our culture. He didn't come down and coddle sinners. He didn't come down and excuse behavior or approve of disobedience. He came down full of grace and truth, but he still flipped temple tables. And he still called out hypocrisy. And he still confronted sin. And he still urged people to live a life that surrendered to him. He loved people in sin without approving of sin. And that church is how we love people struggling with this spoken reality. We love people in sin without approving of sin. And Paul comes in in 1 Corinthians 13 and says, if you do everything else right, but you don't love, then nothing else that you did matters at all. Meaning you can come the church and you can serve and you can lead and you can teach classes and you can go on mission trips and you can share your faith and you can give and you can support a remodel or you can support the church or you can support missionaries or you can even go uh, volunteer into certain ministries of the church or even go out and say, I'm going to go and share my faith every day. But when it comes to people, all people, if you don't love, then none of that other stuff matters. And it's hard truth. But it's still truth. And look how Paul says that we're supposed to love others. Verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. And it is not proud. We have to be patient. And in a world where our patience is tested at every turn, where we, we want things now and we want results now and we want what we want before we even want it. And when it comes to this social or cultural issue, I believe the biggest struggle in this area is that we want people to agree with us. We want people to affirm our feelings towards the matter and we want their admission of wrong. And when we don't get it, our patience runs out instantly. And it reveals our true motives, which usually has less to do with God's love 
and more to do with our own validation. Listen, if you, if you lose patience with someone who's struggling, then you're seeking something more for yourself than you are for the one struggling. Real love is patient through the struggle. It means that, that you may introduce all the truth in the world and they still not get it, and it means you don't lose your patience. It means that whenever you're bombarded with images and, and information constantly, that you don't lose your patience. Because real love is patient love. Paul also tells us that love is kind. I'm going to say this and then I'll move on because if you can't be kind when talking to or talking about individuals that you disagree with, then you don't understand what all you've been forgiven of. Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Is anyone else less deserving of your kindness towards them as you were towards the kindness that God gave you? How dare we be cruel? How dare we be divisive? How dare we point finger in judgment? Romans chapter 2 verse 1 is incredible. He says, you therefore have no excuse who pass judgment on someone else. For whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Because sin is sin in God's eyes. And my sin, although socially maybe less or less damaging or not as, as in the face, sin is sin. And when we begin to point the finger in judgment and we be mean and cruel and divisive, it's like we're forgetting all the sin that we have and all the sin that we've been forgiven of. Love is kind. Paul ends verse 4 by saying, love does not envy, does not boast, and is not proud. And I think I can just kind of generalize all those into one statement, that love is genuine. It's genuine. I told you guys this before because I, I struggle a bit with maintaining an online presence. <laughs> I, don't, I don't really care that much. I don't update social media. I don't, I don't do all those kinds of things. I don't post very often online. Because on one hand... I struggle with that because I want, to, I want everybody to see what our church is doing. I'm so proud of Emmanuel, all the great things that God is at work in, and I want people to see all the ways that they can plug in and participate and all the ways our, our church is making this kingdom impact. And on the other hand, I never want those, those posts to be self-serving, right? It's not about us. It's not about uh, the staff. It's not about uh, we as Emmanuel Baptist Church. It's always about what God is doing. And oftentimes, when we step out of our comfort zone, and we surrender to God's will and his purpose for our life. We use and we, we, we begin to really put like feet to our faith. Maybe for the first time in a long time or the first time ever. Um, the first thing that we do is we publicly share all that we're doing. And in reality, I believe most of the time we're just seeking affirmation. We're making it about us and not about him. And we know the lingo, and we know how to word it, and we can hashtag blessed it all day long. But if our obedience is more about our part than his part, then, in, then our action's not driven out of genuine love. 
This love is a, is a check your ego at the door kind of love. This is not about building up our own name or our own renown. This is about making God's love known to other people. And if every time we do something, the focus is on the fact that we are the ones doing it, then we've lost it. We've gotten any kind of reward we would have gotten from him already. If that's not enough, Paul continues, verse 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. It keeps no record of wrongs. We're not condemning people in sin. It's not our job to do that. We're not off to, to make a list, a laundry list of sins that they've committed, and we're certainly not comparing their sinful acts with our righteous deeds. Real love keeps no record of wrong. Everybody knows John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. You should, you should memorize John 3.17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. See, Jesus didn't come and he didn't point fingers at people. He didn't shame people and he didn't guilt people. He didn't, he didn't come in and, and, and break us and then make us feel bad about being broken. He came in and broke us and pointed us to a God that can mend us. That's what he does. I, I always go back. If you've got your Bible, go to John chapter 8. This is, I don't have this on the screen because it's a little bit longer, and I want us to read it together. It's a familiar story, one that you guys already know. But when we think about keeping no record of wrongs, man, this just, this just jumps off the page. John chapter 8, we'll start in verse 2. It says this. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down and he taught them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in the act of adultery. And they made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down. And started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman... Where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Notice Jesus doesn't berate her. He doesn't shame her or make her feel guilty. He simply acknowledges her lifestyle. And that it's not healthy. And he says, stop living like this. Go and don't do that anymore. Leave that life of sin. Now there's speculation all over the place about what Jesus actually wrote. 
I would love to know. (laughs) I wish that I could tell you what he wrote. Some people want to say that, that that he was writing down the sins of the men in the circle. And I think that would be awesome. I mean, can you imagine these, these men lined up waiting to, 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 to kind of deliver justice in their sense of, of, of self-righteousness and Jesus to start writing down there and like pointing an arrow and like, yeah, that guy did this. And then right over here, well, okay, that guy did this. We don't know. Some people, and I probably lean a little bit more on this thought, some people think that he started writing the law. You know, the Pharisees bragged about knowing the law. But I don't know that they could quote it word for word the way Jesus could. I believe, probably, he bent down and began to write with his hand in the sand the actual law of Moses. And when they saw that, they thought, okay, this guy knows it better than we do. I, I, didn't, I didn't know the surrounding. You know, you've, you've, you meet guys that can, that can quote to you chapter and verse, and they have these things memorized. I don't have a lot of things memorized. I have, I have as much scripture as my tiny brain can hold memorized, but there are some guys that, that can, they can quote the whole book of John from beginning to end, and I, just, I, w- I wish I could do that. But make no mistake, Jesus can do that. And so I think he's writing the law verbatim. Because he was there when he gave it to Moses. And these men drop their stones and they walk away. And, and I think Jesus' statement to her is the same thing that we need to do. Is that it's, like, it's like our favorite thing as church people is to point out the sins of other people. Like holding them responsible or holding it over their heads. And, and, and on, on one level, it's almost like we're making them earn back their forgiveness But that's not at all what Jesus does. Paul tells us love keeps no record of wrongs. And so when it comes to individuals that are struggling, especially in this cultural gender thing, we're not holding it over their head. We're 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 not giving them a list of all the mistakes in our eyes that they have made. Because we're not condemning them. We're genuinely loving them. Notice quickly, it also says, love is not easily angered. And we'll say it like this. If someone's sin angers you and doesn't break you, then you're the one with the heart issue. If you, if you watch Fox News and it angers you, then you're the one with the heart issue. Because it should break your heart. It should honestly drive us to our knees in prayer. Psalm 51, 10 says this. Just listen. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then... Then I will teach transgressors your ways, so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You are who my God and my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. Do not delight. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. 
You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O oh God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, God, you will not despise. See, the hook to teaching transgressors their way is being broken. We can't be, we can't be proud, we can't be arrogant, we can't be puffed up and, and point and go, you should be. No, that's not how Jesus comes to us. And that's not how we should come to him. We come broken. It's not easily angered. If you're angry, then you're not broken. Back to 1 Corinthians. I believe this next line is pivotal, really, in, in what I'm trying to say this morning. So I want you to hear it in your bones. Verse 6, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Loving people doesn't mean that we celebrate evil. Loving people celebrates truth. We don't have time to get into worldview and the abdication of authority over time, but just know this. What we think about this issue means nothing. Your opinion and my opinion is not any more valid than their opinion who is struggling. Authority and truth in the early church was this, Scripture. Scripture was the top of authority and truth in the early church. Right beside Scripture was tradition. How has the church interpreted what God says? Scripture is what God says. How do we interpret what God says is tradition? And right below authority of Scripture and tradition was reason. Does it make sense? What did God say? What do we say about what God said? And does that make sense? Totally makes sense to me. Early church had it kind of together. Then along comes the Protestant Reformation. We guys know this, the Catholic Church messed up a lot of things, and so we kicked tradition out the window, right? We're not going to listen to the church anymore. We're going to keep Scripture at the top and then reason right below it. What does God's Word say, and does that make sense to us? And then in the 1700s, the world turned 18 years old and knows everything about everything, like any other 18-year-old, and we got so smart we didn't need Scripture anymore. And so we kicked scripture out of authority, and now it only matters if it makes sense to us. This is Rene Descartes, I think, therefore I am, right? We've all heard that phrase. If I can, if I can mentally process it, then that's truth. And then now in the world that we live in is what's called a postmodern world where there is no authority. We got rid of scripture, or we got rid of scripture, we got rid of tradition, and we've gotten rid of reason. It doesn't even have to make sense anymore. It's about your story. It's about, y'all have heard this phrase, your truth. And that your truth is just as valid as my truth. And it doesn't have to make sense, and it doesn't have to have any kind of authority over it. It's just whatever we want it to be. And church, that's no way to live. It really isn't. We, we have all the questions and all the hopes and all the needs and nothing to define what is and is not absolute. And that's the job of love. Is that we love people in truth, in what God's word says 
It is the absolute authority, not your opinion, not your feelings, not somebody else's opinions or feelings. And so therefore, what God says goes. If God says it's right, it's right. If God says it's wrong, it's wrong. We don't have to define absolute truth because God already has. And when we come to that and we point people to that reality, that's the most loving thing that we can do because it gives them bearing back. It gives them this, this true north again because they're right now they're just waiting out in a world where there is no north. There is no authority. There is no absolute. And they're just searching for anything that they can and we point them back through love to what God's word says. That is truth. The only thing that matters is what God says. That's, that's, that's how loving this really is. We don't have to bear the weight of what's right and wrong. God's already done that. Love rejoices in truth. One singular truth. We'll wrap up the same way that Paul does with his little quick fire list in verses 7 and 8. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. I like this little list. This is the one that we quote probably the most. Always, 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 always. Always protects, trusts, hopes, perseveres. When all seems lost, love never loses. And if you try and try and try and you seem to make no headway, love always perseveres. There is no quit in love, and therefore there is no quit in us when we love. This gender issue and this spoken reality, real talk, feels like we're losing. It does. It feels like we can't catch a break, and it's the whole world against us. But love perseveres to hope, to trust, and to protect because that's what love does. You can't fail in love because love doesn't fail. Because 1 John 4, 8 says God is love. That's how I know. When it seems like it's stacked against us, we're not going to fail because God doesn't fail because God is love and love never fails. So if God is love, then we can read 1 Corinthians 13 in its entirety and every time it mentions the word love, we can put the word God. If I speak in tongues of men or of angels but do not have God, I'm only a resounding gong or clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge and I have faith that can move mountains but I do not have God, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I can boast but do not have God, I gain nothing. God is patient. God is kind. God does not envy. God does not boast. God is not proud. God does not dishonor others. God is not self-seeking. God is not easily angered. God keeps no record of wrong. God does not delight in evil but rejoices in truth. God always protects. God always trusts. God always hopes. God always perseveres. God never fails. We are to love like God loves because he is love. I told you at the beginning about my written response. I'm going to end with that now. 
I wrote, if you, if you take a step back from the inflammatory rhetoric and from the finger pointing and from the emotional outbursts, I believe you'll find the heart of the issue has been the same since the fall of man. We are living in a broken world that is searching for truth, real, genuine, honest truth, a truth that is only found in God. See, the enemy continues to try to manufacture truth. He presents it in a manner that feels like truth, but ultimately leads to death and destruction. And in turn, the world continues to fall into the trap of deception while ultimately searching for truth. That's why the gospel is so important. Jesus himself says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is exactly what the world is looking for and is the remedy for every issue that we face. And, by the way, this is why the church sharing the gospel is so important. It is truth. And it's the only thing that can effectively change culture. Church, don't fall victim to the deception of false truth. Don't fall victim to a false expression of what love really is. Because we can change the world through loving God and loving others the way that he loved us. It's not going to solve the cultural issues right now. But over time, our response to those cultural issues will point people either to Jesus or away from him. And we point them to through loving. Would you stand with me and bow as TJ comes? And, and maybe, I don't know, maybe you've been wrestling with how do you, how do you express things to people? How do, you, how do you deal with people that just infuriate you? Maybe you've been dealing with maybe family members or friends who are struggling with this issue. And how do you respond to the culture that is so anti-God? And maybe this morning you're feeling a little guilty over the anger that you felt. Maybe this morning you feel a little guilty over the lack of patience that you've had because those are our heart issues. Maybe this morning we just need to come and confess our own struggle so that we can effectively love other people through their struggle. Would you bow with me, God? I thank you for today and I thank you for your word confronting issues that we still deal with today. And how the answer has been the same since the first century is that we love people. God, we don't scream, we don't yell, and we don't draw lines, and we don't point fingers and condemn and berate. God, we love people because in every sense of the word, you chose to love us. And we are no more deserving than anyone else of the love that you can give and change lives through that. And so, Father, this morning, no matter where this hit us, God, in our own self-righteousness or our own processes or maybe even in just the fact that we have not been willing to love, God, break our hearts over that. Draw us to a point of repentance over that. Father, if there's somebody here that has questions, then I'd love to talk to them about it. But Father, let our expression from our mouths and from our actions and from our life be that of love. Because you loved us. 
Father, if somebody needs to join the church or if they need to talk about what baptism is, this is our opportunity to respond to you, whatever you're doing in our hearts. Let's be obedient in this moment. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You guys come as TJ sings.